would ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the 15th chapter of the Gospel according to John. John chapter 15. I would ask you to follow with me as I read verse 9 to verse 12. John 15, beginning the reading at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer. Father, we come this morning to momentous words that we read in the Gospel of John, words of great importance and significance, words that we oftentimes tend to place on the back burner of our lives as we pursue other things, sometimes even contrary things, in this command to brotherly love. We pray that you would give us grace to receive your word with meekness of heart. You'd help us to be teachable, and you'd help us to not only know your truth, but to walk in it, as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one of the principal ways in which God instructs us as his people, is that the things that he holds as important, and wants us to hold as important, You know what he does? He repeats them. He repeats them. God teaches his people through repetition. And I know I've said this before, but bear the word of repetition. Because we need to hear God's truth again and again. You see, the things that are of great importance for his people to know, the things that are of great importance to remember and to do, God's careful to speak about those things with remarkable frequency. It's one of the marks of false teaching that those who are errorists would uh, search in in the scriptures high and low uh, to find indisputed passages with clear difficulties, matters in which they stretch out unnaturally to arrive at meanings that are in conflict with the rest of scripture. You know, they find it in some obscure passage in some place where you look at the passage and you say, I'm not really sure what the context is. I'm not really sure what's being said. I'm not really sure what it means. Uh, and they, they know. They know. They've divined the, the meaning of it. And it's usually something that is quite singular and quite different and just in conflict with the rest of Scripture. You know, the classic way in which we're to interpret the Bible in accordance with the Westminster Confession of Faith is to know that the things that are obscure in some parts of Scripture are usually to make make clear in other places. And the rule of the infallible interpretation of Scripture is the Scriptures itself. And it's what we see God saying again and again and again. Uh, those are the things that should be at the forefront of our understanding of what truth demands of us. Because you see, truth is consistent. And truth is consistently mentioned throughout the length and breadth of the teaching of the word of God. I say this because the farewell discourse that we're studying is notable for the way that it returns again and again to the same themes. Jesus seeks to articulate 
to his disciples over and over again the things that are genuinely central and important to living the Christian life. Now clearly the main theme of our Lord's discourse to these disciples is the call that in his absence as he leaves, as he goes to the cross, as he goes to the Father, that they who remain in this world are not only to remain in submission to him and love to him and abiding in him and serving him, but in their relationship to one another, they're to love one another, they're to serve one another, they're to esteem one another. It's clear in the foot washing that begins this whole section in chapter 13. Our Lord's lesson is, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. In other words, you to do acts of service to one another, even if they seem menial. Even if they seem to be the smallest thing that only slaves in the ancient world would do. You're to be willing to do it for the sake of one another. This we're called to be servants one of another. Not lords of one another. Servants of one another. And of course Jesus ends chapter 13 with what he calls the new commandment. John 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. We have it again in chapter 15 and verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now both of the times our Lord states this matter of love to one another in terms of a commandment, a new commandment, this is my commandment, we know it's not something that's just to take under advice. Uh, this is a nice counsel or suggestion. It's not an option. It's not an advisement. It's a commandment. It's an obligation that's placed upon the lives of his disciples that cannot be shunned, cannot be questioned. Cannot, we can't excuse ourselves from it. We can't rationalize it away. There can be no yes but in the matter of loving our brethren. It's simply, yes, Lord. Grant me the help and the grace and the strength to do your holy will. You see, love, which should be a simple matter of delight and longing on the part of the people of God, is in fact not a very simple thing at all. When you look at the standard that Jesus sets out in the passage, for he says we're to love one another as he has loved us. We're to love one another with the same type of sacrificial, disinterested love that's not concerned about ourselves but others, that looks to minister to the needs of others, for the good of others. Um, That kind of love that Jesus displayed in his life, in his ministry, in his death on the cross, that's not only difficult to us, that's impossible to us. That's something we can't do. Now, thankfully, it does not depend upon us, nor does it find its strength and enablement in us. This, is, this love is a, is, a, is a commandment, but it's a commandment that's based upon an act of salvation, a redemption, a work of liberating grace that Jesus gives himself to as he goes to the cross and he dies for his people. And it's this liberating power of the grace of love that led Jesus to die for us that is the power to be doers of this gospel command to love one another you see we need to get love right 
You see, the failure of the church, and I believe there is a great failure in the church, to continue in brotherly love is to me a very appalling and distressing thing. To see the church not just declaring the mind of the Lord upon matters like of worship and, and culture and gender, which we are supposed to do, we're responsible to do it, and yet when we wrestle with these things and we see this opposition to our opinions and our viewpoints in the world, we then take those things as a matter of conflict. And so we have a surly, snarling bitterness of our heart, not only of the world out there, but the Christians who disagree with us. The Christians who um, have a different view of worship. And we are grieved in their presence. And we have want nothing to do with them. And the church gets divided over so many things and the attitude becomes combative I do believe that the Bible calls us to come to combat it calls us to wrestle but not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world but we're to do it in a way that never abandons the great commandment of the law in fact we're to wrestle and we're to fight and we're to be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ Leading, in, leading with love, not without love. Not by taking up the principles of um, military conflict as the world engages in conflict. I love the hymns of the church that call us to conflict, that calls us to combat. I don't want to ever see them not in our hymnals. But note how the conflict of the Christian life is to be engaged in I'm going to read uh, the words of Lidano King Eternal as an example of this. Uh, they're clearly military, martial terms that we find here. Lead on, O King Eternal. The day of march has come. Henceforth, in fields of conquest, thy tent shall be our home. Like warriors going out into battle in a camp, living in tents. Through days of preparation, Thy grace has made us strong. And now, O King Eternal, we lift our battle song. Folks, we're going to war. We're going to battle. But how is that battle to be conducted by us as God's people? How is the victory to be won? Well, listen to what verse 2 says. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease. That's the warfare we're engaged in. The enemy is sin. The enemy is not people. The enemy is sin. And holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. For not with swords and clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. That's how the history of the church is viewed, the battle that we're engaged in in the Christian warfare. It's a battle that's won not by snarly attitudes and hostile hostility and hatred in our hearts. It's by deeds of love and mercy the heavenly kingdom comes. God blesses his people as we love, as we serve, as we humble ourselves to minister to others and to give to others the gospel, the things we know and love and seek. And it's that love that gains credibility for the gospel. It used to be thought that the world was impressed by the fact that we love one another. Look at how they love one another. It was the mark of the presence of God among his people. And I think we feel today, deeds of love and mercy, yeah, 
Well, okay, they have their place. But we really need to get teeth into this matter of how we win the world for Jesus, how we bring back the nation to Christ, and we get militant in ways that are not right at all. And absent deeds of love and mercy, it's present deeds of hostility rather than love and mercy. We need to get it right. There were to be a people who lead with acts of love, loving our brothers and sisters, and then having that love that spills over from the church into the world. As Paul calls the church at Galatia to not grow weary in well-doing, but in due season we shall reap if we faint not, and to do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, but not limited to those of the household of faith. To be a people who are doing good in the service of our Lord, and the service of our neighbor, loving God, loving neighbor, and loving God's people, even unto death. I want to begin to look at this passage of Scripture uh, this morning by focusing in on what I'm calling the primacy of love. The primary place or primacy that love takes in the lives of the people of God. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. How do we come to the place where we keep this commandment to love one another as he has loved us? Well, we need to dwell in the love of God. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. The primacy of love. Secondly, the proof of the love of God in us. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus says, I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the proof of love. Keeping the commandments of Jesus. And then finally, there's the power of love. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. There's some relationship that we need to explore between the matter of his joy and our joy, and his joy and our joy and love. So let's begin with this matter of the primacy of love. And here we need to see that love does not begin with us. Jesus does not just begin, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. That comes upon the heels of Jesus' declaration that love is already a reality in the lives of his people that begins not with our love to each other, but God's love, his love to us, and the Father's love to the Son. He first begins as the Father has loved me. As the Father has loved me. The first thing to see is that love is in God. And God is love. And the love that is in God is not a self-centered, self-interested, self-referential thing. It's something that is outgoing, other-oriented. It's not just that the Father loves himself. He loves his Son. He loves his Son. There is in the triune God the lover and the object that is loved. In the divine nature, there is this interrelatedness of love eternally existing. doesn't begin in time. It is in eternity. God dwells in a loving relationship with His Son. 
and with the Spirit and the mystery of the eternal Trinity in eternal triune relations. And it's vital to know. It's vital to understand because it makes Christianity qualitatively different than any other religion, even other, other types of monotheism that exist in the world and yet deny the Trinity. You see, other types of monotheism that speak of one God and yet that one God is, does not, not have the threeness of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relationship uh, they have a God who's characterized by many things. But absence of self-absorbed, self-centered, self-interested love is not one of them. It's not one of them. Because you see, God may be merciful, He may have moral perfection, but He eternally is only one entity, one being, one um, not one being, but uh, 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 one thing that was no interpersonal idea of involved, outgoing love to another. And where that's absent, that God is always at a distance from His creation. Think of Islam. It's unthinkable that God would ever create a creature in His image and His likeness. We can't be images of God because God dwells alone. He dwells singularly apart from His creation where there's no commonality or no common bond or no interest in the creation itself. Unless God will stoop in acts of mercy perhaps, but yet there's no practice of eternal, outgoing, other-involved love. It's the Christian idea of an involved, personal, outgoing love and interest in God himself that then extends to the creation of God. God loves His creation, and that's the reason He created all things, is that His love would be revealed to His creation, be extended to His creation, because that idea of an involved, personal, outgoing love is part of the divine nature. It's part of who God is. And so Christian monotheism is Trinitarian to its core in which God's love, His eternal love, His eternal involved and loving relations within the persons of the Trinity is bound up in His own being and then is extended to His creatures because that's who God is. The Father has loved the Son as the Father has loved me. The Son of God who whom we see the Father revealed, the Son of God has been sent by the Father in love to a fallen, sinful world to redeem the world back to God. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so in turn I have loved you. This personal, outgoing love that the Father has towards His Son is a love that continues to spread out into His creation towards us towards his image bearers with whom Jesus walked for three and a half years it was a love that Adam knew in the garden of Eden as God walked with him in the cool of the day it's a love that involves, brings God to be involved with his creation his image bearers intimate communion 
And sin came into the world and it brought devastation to the world, but it didn't destroy the outgoing love of God. God's committed to love. God is love. God reveals His love. God extends His love. God sheds abroad His love. And He does it through the Divine Son whom He sends in the world in love. We're told that in love He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. It's in love that God sent His own begotten Son. It's in love that Christ has come and He has died in love He accomplishes that work of restoration so that a people foreknown and foreloved would come into the embrace of that love. The Son brings the eternal love of the Trinity into time. As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Think of how the Father loved the Son. The Father loved the Son because the Father was always with the Son. Never see the Son being without His Father. That the Father taught the Son, led the Son, protected the Son, and provided for the Son, and upheld the Son, and enabled the Son to do the works that He was given to do. And Jesus says, as the Father has been with me in that way of lovingly being with me, leading me, providing for me, protecting me, upholding me. So I've taught you. I've led you. I've led you, my disciples. I've provided for you, my disciples. I've protected you. I've upheld you and enabled you. In me, you have seen the love of God. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you in these tangible, clear, and concrete ways. Again, love is not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It's the principled way of action for the good of the object loved. That's exactly the love of Christ towards His people. And Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you in these concrete ways. Now, what you need to be doing, my disciples, is you need to be abiding in my love. And Jesus has already said we're to abide in Him as a branch abides in the vine, a branch can not bear fruit, it's detached from the vine, so you must be vitally joined to me and attached to me and connected to me. But principally, our connection with Jesus is a fellowship of love. It's an abiding in the love with which He has loved us. The love that met us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The love that loved us in our most unlovely unloveliness. Jesus says, remain in my love. Continue in my love. Don't forsake my love. Again, that word from the book of Jude. Keep yourself in the love of God. How often do you think of the love of God this week? How often did you think of the love with which Christ has loved his people this week? How long have you basked how, how many times this week did you bask in the reality of that love? A love that communes with you. A love that seeks to walk with you. A love that knows you at your worst and yet doesn't forsake you. A love that 
is concerned with your good and well-being, concerned to teach you, concerned to provide for you, to protect you. Have you basted all of that love this week? It should be a regular habit to remind ourselves how we are loved of God. How the God of love has come and met us in His Son. How the love that the Father had to the Son now is revealed to us in the Gospel. That God has loved us and saved us and called us to Himself to engage in a relationship with us in which the primary and prevailing note of it all is His love. We are those in whom the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. And Paul could say, I'm persuaded that nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See how much Scripture makes of the love of God towards His people and ask yourself how much have you made of the love of God towards your own soul in the week that has preceded us our meeting this morning Jesus says abide in my love remain in my love don't forget my love don't be detached from my love don't say well that's that's alright but there's more important things to be concerned about there's nothing more important to be concerned about but that he has loved you and given himself for you Now this matter of the primacy of the priority of love is to register in the lives of his people in the way of an appropriate response. How is love to be responded to? Well, again, we have such things that we read about in novels, see in movies, that we call unrequited love. That's love that just has one party that falls all over him. It's himself or herself to love another and yet we find that that love is not requited, it's not returned it's not reciprocated but you see the love of the gospel is a love that demands reciprocation, it demands that we love in return John says it best we love because he first loved us again This love is not a distant love. It's a love that communes with us. It's a love that enters into our life experience through the Holy Spirit that's given to us in which God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. There's an abundance of the reality of love that the love that God has had towards us comes into our experience through the Spirit inwardly bringing us that awareness, that recognition of love that brings the response of love. It says, I love the Lord. All that He is and all that He's done for me. The Psalms express it. I love the Lord. He hears my voice and my supplication. Magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. So it's full dark recognition of what God has done for us in Christ that brings us to love Him in return. 
And that love reciprocates, not just with words of love. Not, Lord, I love you because you love me. But the love that's demonstrable. Love that is concrete. Love that takes the form of obedience to his commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And not only so, but if you keep my commandments, he actually here, he turns it around. It's not just if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That was back in chapter 14. And that's true. If you love Christ, you're going to keep his commandments. You can't claim to love him and disregard his words. You You don't love another person when you simply disregard everything they say about themselves and their sensibilities and the things that defend them, the things that delight them. You say, well, I love you, but I could care less about what you're telling me. Love listens. Love hears. Love receives the words of the object we love. And love is sensitive to do the things that will delight the object that we love. And so if we love him, we will keep his commandments. But here in chapter 15 and verse... 10, it's the opposite. Well, it's not really the opposite. But it begins with, if you keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You see, if we don't keep His commandments, we cut ourselves off from the sphere of in which the love of God is present. Because what does it mean not to keep His commandments? It means to sin. Right? We sin by not keeping His commandments. Sin is the transgression of the law, John says. It's breaking God's law. It's saying, I could care less about what God has said, and I will go it on my own, and I will do my own thing, and I will fulfill my own desires and my own will. And that there, we've declared ourselves God of our own lives, and we have no regard for the God who has given His word of commandments to us. And so we sin, and in our sin, we cut ourselves off. We exile ourselves from deep, intimate contact and communion with the God of love. We turn our faces away from Him. We close our ears from hearing His voice. We're saying we don't need His love. We don't need to be loved by Him. We're sufficient on our own to figure it all out, to make our way in life without Him. We don't need Him to be with us, to fellowship with us, to commune with us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, to provide for us, to protect us, to uphold us. We don't need Him for these things. We move out of the sphere of the love of God In essence, we cut ourselves off from the vine. In essence, we cut ourselves off from the source of spiritual life. We've chosen death rather than life. Thankfully for the Christian, that can only be a temporary state of things. For the Christian, they can't be a permanent state of things. The Christian will always come to repentance in one way or another. There's always a pathway back to the Lord. There's always a way of return. There's always the forgiveness of our sins daily that he offers us the reality of cleansing. The reality is that when you look at the life of the believer, and the overall trajectory of the life of the believer is defined in Proverbs chapter 4 when it says the path of the righteous shines more and more unto the perfect day, unto the midday sun. We shine more and more, not less and less, more and more. 
basic trajectory of the life of the people of God. Because we're a people who abide in His love. We're people that can't stay distant from the love of God. The love of God calls us to Himself, beckons us to return to Him, makes us feel unclean in our sins, makes us feel wasteful in the lives we've lived apart from Him. So it's the abiding of His love that's the joy and the delight of his of our hearts. And so can't, commandment keeping cannot be a matter of indifference. It has to be a matter of conscience. It has to be a matter of our own preservation of our own spiritual well-being. That we be a people that love God's law and have His law written in our hearts and have a delight hearing his instruction and doing his will because we know that's the path of greater fellowship that's the path of more deeply abiding in him and in his love Jesus is the example of that the example of the one although he never sinned yet the commandments of the father became more difficult as his life went on because it ultimately was obedience unto death the death of the cross and it wasn't that Jesus didn't have a version to that. He did. We come to the scenes before the cross where he says, I'm exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. In Gethsemane, he prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. But yet the commitment was always to obey the will of his Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His commitment was to be doing his Father's will. To know the joy and the delight in doing the will of his Father. So we are called to abide in the love of God, in the keeping of the commandments of God, even when they're hard, even when they're difficult. But you know, we have something inside us as God's people that compels us and drives us into greater and greater degrees of loving obedience. And you know what that is? It's what I believe Jesus is expressing in the words of verse 11. Well, in the words of verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. In connection to this call to abide in his love, is this call to have his joy, or or this purpose that he has, to have his joy in us, and our joy to to be made full. Here we find the power of love. Depression is something that paralyzes. When someone is depressed, you can't get them out of bed. They want to sleep all the time. They just want to be inactive. The motivation to live the Christian life, to abide in the love of God, to keep His commandments, the power to persevere in love, is joy. It's joy. That's so in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. 
the joy that was set before him. Well, it could have been the crown that was set before him as he ascended the throne of the universe. It's the joy of knowing he was living in God's good pleasure and he was pleasing the Father even as the Father made him the sacrifice for our sins. But joy became the real power behind persevering love, behind carrying out the will of God. Where joy is not present, we will stagnate. Where joy is not present, we will not be motivated to energetic efforts in the pursuit of the love of God. You have a scene that happens in the book of Nehemiah, I believe it's chapter 8, where Ezra comes and reads the law of God and he's reading all of the aspects of God's commands and the people listening and they realize we've done hardly any of this or none of this and we're so wicked and we're so rebellious and we're so sinful and we're so, oh man, let's just sit down and cry. And that's what they were doing. They were weeping at the reading of the word. That's all they could do was weep. Just how wicked and wretched and rebellious and worthy of, si- of judgment they were. Nehemiah tells him, stop this. This is not a time for weeping. God's taken you out of captivity in Babylon. He's brought the remnant back to the land. This is a time now when the wall's been built. The city's going to be restored. The temple will be built. This is a time as we read God's word to stance, to to, to, to uh, bask ourselves in the light of his goodness. And it's in the light of his goodness and in the light of the love with which he's loved us, we're to experience joy. And Nehemiah says something very, well, you think this is almost like a psychologist today talking from studies that have been done. And yet the Spirit of God, of course, gave him this insight. He says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's not having a pity party over how wicked and terrible and rebellious we are. That's going to lead you to the depression that simply is going to paralyze. It's joy that empowers. Again, Jesus is speaking to a group of people who are troubled in heart. Let not your heart be troubled. They hardly know what to do. The Lord's going to leave them. Where are they going to be then? How terrible life is. How horrible our our futures are. And then Jesus begins to speak these words about the whole purpose of his going. Going to bring you into the Father's presence. Going to bring you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Going to bring you to the place wherever you ask in prayer that he will do for you. Um, he's going to send the paraclete who will be another comforter he'll lead you into all truth I will not leave you as orphans I I will connect you to myself as a branches in a vine I will be your power to to enable you to bear fruit when you abide in me I've revealed to you the reality of my love and the father's love to me what kind of dismal future is this when you live in the light of the plan and purpose of Christ, there's not a hopeless future, folks. The future is glorious. The future involves not defeat, but victory. More than conquerors to him who loved us. 
And that's to elicit a heart that's filled with joy. And it's not conditioned upon external circumstances. We saw this morning the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians. Paul writes to them how they received the word of God with great affliction. Well, the people in Thessalonica were were sick of these Christians. They, They hated Paul. They drove him out of town. The Jewish leaders hated him. The leaders of the city hated them. They were getting hated on by all these people. He says, you receive the word of God with much affliction and joy in the Holy Spirit. How do you put those things together? That God's people are given joy to serve Him, to rejoice in His grace and His power that we might serve Him. Serve the Lord with fear, Psalm 2 says. It goes on to say, rejoice with trembling. Fear and joy together. Serving in joy as well as fear. Without joy, our spirits will lack. We will stagnate. We will run from Christian service. We will run from the activities we're called to be doing in the scriptures simply because we find no joy in them. You know, when you have joy in your communion with God, when you have joy in your reading of the scriptures, then that's something you want to go back to again and again and again. And what's sustained me through these years in the ministry is the fact I really enjoy what I do. I really enjoy studying the Word of God. I really enjoy reading theology. I find great joy and satisfaction in it. When I stop feeling joy, I'll retire. I'll go do something else. When you really love your work, it ceases to be work and it becomes to be something that you can't wait to get at. Something you want to be doing. And Jesus has given us all the basis of joy in the words that He speaks to us. His words that He speaks to us should be a joy-inducing, a joy-imparting word to us. And of course, He's given us His Holy Spirit, the fruit of which is what? Love, joy. It's amazing how often love and joy are placed together in close proximity to one another because it's really the love of God that does bring joy to us. It brings the reality of joy to our hearts and enables us to serve the Lord. Yes, with a principled concern to do His will, to bring all things captive to His obedience, but to do that thing not out of a sense of uh, just you know wind me up and get me doing it, but joyful doing it, joyful service to the God of heaven and earth. So joy becomes that grace that upholds and sustains and empowers and enables us to do the will of God. And so it begins with God's love to Jesus in the Trinity. And then it extends to us as God's people. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. It's love that leads us to obey His commandments. To abide in His love is to abide in the doing of His commandments, of not sinning, of obeying and knowing the smile of heaven, knowing the reality of a God who is pleased with the service His people render. And to be filled with the joy that enables us to render that service to His glory and to His honor.
And you know, when you really see these matters of the, the priority beginning with God's love and the Trinity, Christ's love to us, and then the love that involves the keeping of uh, His commandments, abiding in His love, um, and the joy that powers, then the commandment He gives us that we love one another as He has loved us becomes less daunting. Becomes less daunting. Becomes less in the realm of the impossible. By nature, yes, it is impossible. But by grace, all things are possible. By grace, God actually enables our, us as His people to know appreciable measures of genuine love to one another. And that's why I've stuck together with one congregation, not just going to congregation to congregation to congregation every four or five years, which is the pattern of some people in ministry today. It's because if we can end up going through life together and coming as we even get into our years where we get kind of... um, we get kind of surly with love just because life tends to bring us that way. We still know joy and we still know peace and believing and we still know love to one another. That's God's manifestation of His presence, of His grace, of His sustaining hand. And that's something that should delight us to the depths of our soul. Well, may God be pleased to bless His word and God willing will take up the theme of love to one another as it makes its demands upon us as God's people, as we take up the next paragraph in the discourse. So let's commit our thoughts to the Lord as we go to Him in prayer. Father, we're thankful we can meet together in Your presence. We can look into Your Word. We're thankful for the richness of Scripture. We're thankful for the, the wisdom of Scripture. We're thankful for the reality of the blessings that the Scripture imparts. We're thankful for the greatness of the love with which You loved us. Love that was marked us out when we were our most unlovely, and yet you made us alive together with Christ. By grace we've been saved. You've raised us up with Him. You've made us to sit with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the age to come you would show forth the exceeding riches of your grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And being a people with such a future, being a people with such prospects of not only what you have done for us, but will do for us. Help us to be filled with joy joy in the Spirit and love to your name, faithfulness and service, to hearken to your voice, to do your commandments, and to fulfill your holy will. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.